At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best in Show, the Rabbit and KV podcast. So Alan, what's going on in your world right now? Well, believe it or not, it's actually snowing that sometimes in California, though I don't like to admit it. So it's kind of a wet, mushy snow. That's what happens where we live in the central Sierras at around 2,200 feet. It's pretty for about five minutes and it reminds me of Connecticut and then it turns in mud and like a mudslide. So it's not too, it's not too glamorous. <laughs> what about there in Kansas? Well, um, it's been typical early March, warm, blustery days, but the mud is soon to come here too. It's, it's always a, a lovely mid-March feature in this state. <laughs> Yeah, springtime comes with its with its warm positives and then also some some not so positive st stuff. But I guess warmer weather is coming for everyone and some brighter days hopefully as well. So I was at a show in Dalton, Georgia this past weekend, and even though we're recording this episode before we've launched the podcast, I was really surprised to hear about how much excitement there is for this. Um, we we're so thrilled. We can't wait and, and hope that we fulfill everybody's dreams and, you know, bring people into the hobby a bit more. So the great points there that, you know, we are going to be talking about snowing in California now. We're not quite sure when this episode will actually air, but, um, you know, hopefully it'll be relatively soon. So we apologize for maybe some outdated stuff, whether it's current events and rabbits or weather related. So we don't want to turn this into a, like an old weather report. But um, as we get our first <laughs> episodes ironed out, that's just part of the process of getting these things launched. Um, we really appreciate everyone's enthusiasm. And Brian, you've been to a couple more shows than I have recently. And you've shared me with shared with me that enthusiasm and excitement. I think that's just, that's just awesome because it's exactly what we talked about when we decided to, to do this podcast was to include people and bring, bring people together in our, in our rabbit and KV world uh, on a positive note. It's really awesome. So um, Alan, you have some current events from the domestic rabbits from July, August of 2011. What was going on it. then so in the air? We picked 2011 to uh, be our history this year or this episode. And I, I understand that 2011 is like not that far, far in the past. I mean, it was only 10 years ago, but some interesting things were going on in 2011 in the ARBA and it relates to our special guest today. So before I talk about that part, I will introduce that uh, this content comes from the July, August, 2011 domestic rabbit magazine. Um, in that episode, you would have seen that Mike Avising was the ARBA president and Eric Bankson was our vice president. Uh, looking further through that standard or that uh, domestic rabbits, there was a working standard for the Lilac Polish and the Smoke Pearl Mini Rex published in Cheryl Angling Standards Committee report. And that meant that their first presentation would have been uh, later on in 2011 at the ARBA convention, which of course was the 88th ARBA convention in Indianapolis. And Brian, you're more up to date on this than I am. Um, uh, Polish, I believe they are a recognized variety now, correct? The Lilac Polish under a different presenter. Yes, they've passed their third presentation in 2020, and they are now a newly recognized variety. Very cool. So as you said, different presenter, but ultimately, uh, in recent history, they are now a recognized variety. So it's, it's a long process that uh, takes a, does not take the, the faint of heart to, to pull off. Um, also in this Domestic Rabbit Magazine issue, Dr. Jay Harais, who also at the time was the District 9 Airbnb director for the Southeast region of the U.S. He wrote a comprehensive article on 
how to obtain health certificates for shipping rabbits. And uh, a quote from that article says, shipping rabbits domestically and internationally is steadily gaining popularity with the ARB members on almost every continent. Um, and Eric Bankston's vice president report, he says, June 1st, 2011 was a monumental day in the history of the ARBA. On that day, we had ARBA judges traveling to Japan, Thailand, Malaysia, New Zealand, and Australia. So probably our guests are guessing exactly where this episode is going, but it's definitely on the, on the international uh, frontier of the ARBA and the growth of rabbits and caveys around the world. Uh, later in the Domestic Rabbit Me magazine issue from, from this time, uh, on page 18, in fact, it was an article that I wrote summarizing my recent trip to Malaysia. Um, it was the very first ARBA-sanctioned show in Malaysia. I was really honored to be asked to judge that show. And I flew out to Kuala Lumpur. And um, I mean, it was just, it was, it was mind-blowing at the time because there were some shows happening in other parts of the world. You know, Brian, you, you remember as well as I do in the late 90s when um, Japanese breeders were traveling to the United States. We would see them at conventions and they put on some of the first shows in, in Asia in the early 2000s or late 90s and then early 2000s. And then slowly other countries in Asia uh, started to pick up ARBA sanctioned shows. Uh, I think the first in Southeast Asia was Thailand. And then thereafter it was Malaysia in 2011. So that article I wrote was just like a, like a, like a little kid. I was like a little kid, so excited to be at a rabbit show somewhere so far away yet with people that were embracing and sharing the same spirit uh, for the same animals that, that I, that I did, that you do, that all of us do on our part of the world. So it was a really cool trip. And I, I, re I relate in that article to feeling like my very first rabbit show again, because of all of the energy from the, from these breeders there that they had never been to an Airbnb show before. So that was in Malaysia. They were super pumped. Can you imagine going to your very first rabbit show, uh, having actually also then putting on the show. I mean, it's like, that's a big, that's a big task to, to go to your first show and also, by the way, be organizing. It. And that's what this team with the uh, Malaysia Rabbit Club were doing. It was just remarkable. And yeah, there were some glitches and some things that didn't go so smoothly, like the cooping and how to judge them on top of cages over, I think we used like, like uh, that fake grass stuff. <laughs> it was, it was awkward, but I'm like, hats off to those guys for, for just doing it and trying it and, I remember there were comment cards like all over the floor that morning, everyone trying to sort them and get them in order. And it was, it was, it was an energy about it. And it was, it was something I'll, I'll never forget. And uh, that does lead us into our special guest today, which I'm going to hold off on. Uh, while you give us some updates, Bryony, from 2011 around the world. Well, on June 1st, 2011, I was actually one of those judges um, on a plane to Japan. I judged I a show there with Scott. Oh my God. Uh-huh. Yep, I was judging with Scott Rodriguez. That was his first trip to Japan. Uh, you hear Scott in doing our disclaimer every day at the end of our episodes or every episode. Um, so we were, you know, kind of laughing and joking about this mass exodus of judges to Asia and Oceania. But it was really exciting at the time. I mean, everyone was all pumped up about, you know, where are you going? What are you doing? Um, just so excited to to spread our hobby. And I think you really hit the nail on the head with the part about the energy and the excitement. That's part of every show in Japan or Southeast Asia. And I know that the breeders, you know, thank us for bringing our experience judging and, you know, helping them to improve their breeding programs, just like we do here. But we get just as much as they do, I think, from that enthusiasm and excitement. I mean, I would compare it to maybe like a 4-H show where all of the kids are really into rabbits. I mean, it's that level of excitement. People stick around. Um, everybody watches judging. Almost everybody stays until the end of the show. I mean, it's it's not just, you know, put my rabbits on the table and then, you know, now I can go do what I want. Um, but it's it's a day. Everyone's there for the event and, you know, puts all of their heart into it and is happy to be there. And I know it just every time recharges me and makes me excited to come back and keep doing what I do uh, over here. It's so true. You and I have talked about that when we both returned from these trips because you and I have had the incredible opportunity opportunities to, to go to Asia, to judge uh, over several countries and multiple times. And we always get together at some point and go, gosh, did it not just feel like your first show again? And you, you just said, you're like, you're, you're re-energized. Like you just, you, you love this rabbit and cavey thing even more. And it reminds us of those, those natal days in, in the, in our hobbies. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think I think for everyone that that loves this hobby, just that touch back to your first days in the hobby is always something special. So in 2011, in U.S. and world events, in January, the protests that were then called the Arab Spring began. In March, a 9.0 earthquake and tsunami hit the east coast of Japan, leaving almost 20,000 people dead or missing. This um, did affect some nuclear power plants in and around uh, the Tokyo area. I know that worried some people when we went over to Japan that June, but we're just fine. In April, there was the wedding of Prince William, the newly created Duke of Cambridge, and Kate Middleton, who then, of course, became the Duchess of Cambridge. In May, Osama bin Laden was killed. There was a tornado in Joplin, Missouri that killed 158 people. That was a really bad year for tornadoes through the Midwest. In July, Neptune completed its first orbit since discovery, which I don't know, I'm kind of like a space geek, but it had clearly been doing this for quite some time before we came along and decided we needed to be part of it. Um, but that was the first orbit it completed since we discovered it. And the space shuttle Atlantis touched down after completing the final mission of the space shuttle program. And then in November, for those who like video games, Minecraft was finally fully released. It's Minecraft. I don't know, but I hear people talk about it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really I'm a gamer. I, I don't. I, I know that it's a game, but I, gaming, I, gaming for me, I think ended with like a Game Boy when I was in second grade. It just, and thankfully, I can't. I just can't do it. Yeah, I like the original Nintendo with like Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt. Oh, yeah, and that's about it for me too. <laughs> It was that first Nintendo like show on the screen. I remember like blowing these little cassettes and you'd, you'd stick them in. And the very first like intro was was Duck Hunt followed by Super Mario. It was, it was fun. We had like this little trigger thing that never worked either. But okay, here I am talking. Yeah, about the, the gun for I Duck Hunt. Game, I, I didn't game past second grade. Okay, <laughs> yes, good old Duck Hunt. So, Alan, I think it's time to introduce today's guest. I'm so excited. Today we are welcoming ARBA Judge Number Nine Seven Nine, and she comes all the way from. Jakarta, Indonesia. She is a recipient of a 2019 ARBA Distinguished Service Award for her contributions to the ARBA, most notably on the international frontier. She currently serves the ARBA International Liaison Committee as the chairman, and she's a longtime friend of mine and, and yours as, uh, as well, Bryony. Uh, we welcome Judge 979 from Jakarta, Indonesia. Ari, welcome to the podcast. Hi, everyone. Hi, Alan. Hi, Bryony. How's it going, oh, guys? Um, it's rainy almost all the time here now. It's wet, as usual, you know, wet and hot. So Brian and I record the podcast in the evenings, and currently it's it's 8 p.m. here in the in the Pacific time zone. What time is it in Jakarta? It's about almost 11 in the morning. And you've been here to the U.S. a few times. What's our time difference from the western side of the United States to uh, Indonesia? It's kind of about 12 to 14 hours, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> it makes traveling there and here uh, a lot of fun, right? Ah, yeah. It's <laughs> a long leg flight. A long, a long flight and a lot of jet lag. Oh, yeah. All right. So, all right. Tell us, how did you get started in this rabbit journey? What, what and when and, and got you involved and how did you find rabbits? Well, it's actually, I'm a, a newbie in rabbits. I started to have rabbit in like 2008. It was a pet rabbit. I mean, like, because we don't have any standard rabbit yet here. Because the RBA, I think the RBA was about 2012 that introduced to Indonesia. And um, before that, we only have like, any local breeds or any breeds, maybe some standard breeds, but we don't know any standard of them. So that's a good point. You got into rabbits and it was a pet rabbit, as a lot of us do when we get into rabbits. Um, without having rabbit shows there, um, it was it was simply a pet or what inspired you to find out about showing rabbits? Well, actually, we have like kind of local shows, like um, mostly for breeder shows. It was a long, long time shows that it's only um, without any standard. I mean, like we have kind of three judges 
that judge uh, the, the the rabbits. It's um from the academician and then researcher and um, a vet, and they judge the rabbit um, just based on their knowledge. And so how did you how did you find that that community of of showing rabbits? Uh, going from a pet owner to showing rabbits on the local level, not ARBA, but how did you find about rabbit showing? Like, how do you, how are you exposed to that living in the capital city of Indonesia? Oh, yeah, actually that the show is uh, kind of two, three hours from my home. And one of my friends, he ever joined for the show and he informed me, informed me that there's a show there. So that's why I'm interested to see how about the rabbit show? Because I never think there's a show about rabbit. I mean, it's only um, cat and dogs show so far. And did you have interest in, back then, did you have interest in showing other species of animals such as cats and, and dogs? Were you already doing that or were rabbits your first exposure to a show animal environment? <laughs> Actually, the rabbit is my first time for um, showing any animals. Were you um, inspired by the fact that rabbits and showing rabbits were kind of a new frontier in Indonesia? Was that one of the reasons why you decided to show rabbits? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, so unique that you never think before that you can show a rabbit. Right. So tell us, like, what is it back in the day? So we're talking, I believe you said 2008, 2009. This is long before the ARBA had, or not long, but a few years before the ARBA was uh, having a presence in Southeast Asia. What did a rabbit show look like in Indonesia before the ARBA? Um, it's kind of, like I said before, it's kind of a local show, uh, mostly breeder show. No, no. I mean, like mostly the exhibitors are were breeders and it was, it it was judged by a vet and then an academician and a researcher. So they will collect all the three points and they, they will decide who's the winner. So there's no standard for that. We just follow their knowledge. So you have local researchers there that somehow specialize in, in, in animals, maybe zoology or um, I remember meeting Dr. Yono at one of the shows, I believe it was in Bandung. And Dr. Yono yeah. was, he was a local Indonesian, but he also had studied here in the United States at Oregon State University, correct? Right. Yeah. And he, and he and worked he under Dr. Chi. Right. So so he was he considered the authority uh, in the early days of rabbit showing in Indonesia? Yep. He's one of it. And... He judged based off of you know his own opinion. It wasn't necessarily a written standard, even ARBA standards. Well, actually, he has a standard, like an old standard, but I don't think that he's really following the standard. <laughs> so, how did you become exposed to the ARBA? You're going to these first local shows. How did it come that you found out about the ARBA, and how did Indonesia find out about the ARBA? Well, actually, we have like um, an old um, chat groups at Cascos that it's an old, old like a group before the Facebook. We have kind of a flat platform called Cascos uh, US that there's a rabbit care club rooms that we talk about rabbits from the pets and everything for the health, just like normal groups of rabbits. And then one of the member talk about the ARPA rabbit stuff, but nobody knows what it is. So I'm trying to find out, Googling what is the ARPA. So, but I, I'm not only finding about the ARPA, but I also find about the BRC. So how did social media play a role in the early part of developing a rabbit show community? in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. What was it about social media that really helped? I think it's through the Facebook. Like I met some of the people who's um, the frontier, the earliest uh, people who doing the rabbit show 
of the Airbnb picture, I mean, is I met them through Facebook, actually. And how did that help link you to the rest of the world? Well, yeah, it's really helps. I mean, that uh, the the Facebook is really helps me to connect with all the people from all over the world, especially now for the the Southeast Asian in Asia that we use the Facebook a lot for that. And you mentioned the BRC and the ARBA. Maybe you could elaborate on both of those or or more when I ask um, which Western countries influenced the early days of rabbits in Indonesia and Southeast Asia and, and, and why did they influence you? Well, actually it's more to the ARBA. I mean, like, um, because uh, some people uh, feel it's easier to reach the ARBA. I mean, from the website, from the information and everything are, and how to apply for a membership at that early days, I mean, like in 2009, that for us, it's easier to be an ARBA member than the BRC member at that time. So that's why some people, uh, they choose the, the ARBA and also some of the rabbits were from the United States, even though there's some European breeds also already here. But I think... Um, because of it's easy to get information and everything, so that's why they decide to go to the RBA. So that's a that's a good point that you um, that you remarked. And by the way, I think that's a nod to the ARBA for um, for being you know open and inclusive and maybe a little easier to access when it came to mm-hmm. you know finding out about rabbits. That's, that's that's I mean that makes me feel great. I'm sure it makes it brings the same it resonates the same emotions with with Bryony too. It's a it's a nod to <laughs> nod to the ARBA. Um, you mentioned those early rabbits and where they came from. You said some came from Europe, some came from the United States. How did that affect breeders when it came time for, you know, choosing ARBA? It sounds like early on, um, Indonesian breeders decided ARBA was going to be the pathway, the system that rabbits were shown. Yet you have rabbits from all over the world, particularly Europe and the United States. Was that challenging to you and challenging to breeders who may have had both um, types of rabbits, you know, rabbits coming from a different standard than the ARBA. What was that like uh, to learn about rabbits and then to have almost two different versions of some of the same breeds? Well, yeah, actually, um, because um, like I said earlier that uh, it's easier to us for us access to the ARBA and also the standard than other uh, countries like the European countries. One of the reasons is because of the language. No, I mean, it's easier for us to read in English than other European. Like, I think that the European standard world is in German, right? And not a lot of people in Indonesia can read or speak German. So actually talk about that, because I think that's a big question. When Brian and I and other judges return from judging overseas, the big question is, well, how on earth do you communicate with everyone? Does Do people speak English? So I mean, your English is, is fantastic, and I know you speak a number of languages. Um, what about other breeders? Is, is, is English common in rabbit breeders in Indonesia and across Southeast Asia? Um, in Indonesia, it's not really, but in some countries like Malaysia and Philippines, some of them, they speak English. But in Indonesia, uh, especially like in a rabbit show, sometimes uh, we need to translate um, the the judges or sometimes I need to translate like some terms and from the standard into Indonesian that makes sense from them. Right. And then that happens. I mean, when we judge there, oftentimes I mean, it's one of the, one of the days I, I first met you, you were there very active in the show as a translator uh, between the judge and the audience, the audience that, you know, primarily did not speak English. And do you think that it, maybe it was your English and, um, Ability to speak other languages. Do you think that that influenced your influenced your participation? I should say in the early shows because you were very active from the get go. I remember getting off the plane in Jakarta in 2012, where I met you at the airport, and in your hand <laughs> was the ARBA standard and the ARBA registrar study guide. And I was I was so touched. I'm pre- I think I had tears in my eyes. I was just blown away that here I am arriving in a country I'd never been to before, and and you've got these ARBA documents there 
clearly you spoke wonderful English and, and your English has improved quite a bit since you've come over here quite often. Um, do you think that English had an, had a, had influence on your participation in rabbits and caves in Asia? Well, yeah, that's true because, um, we need to read all the document from the RPA in English. And, um, here now some people also interested, interested in, um, to have the standard, but they still ask me to translate some of the standard for them. <laughs> of course, because they're only in English. <laughs> oh, gosh. So what was it, what was it like for the other breeders? Were they, were they excited to be part of the ARBA once you and your team decided to, um, you know, go with ARBA charters and sanctions for shows? Were other members that maybe were new or had been around for a while, were they excited to show ARBA style? Yeah, I mean, like now we have some local show and some ARBA sanctioned shows, and most of the people they prefer for the ARBA sanctioned shows because um, from the shows they have like a, an assurance about the standard and how the judging system and everything. So that's why they prefer the ARBA uh, sanctioned shows. So back in 2008, when you're getting started in rabbits and you discover rabbit showing the only shows in your country were ones that were considered, you say, local shows judged by local, quote, quote, experts, you know, scientists, potentially, or veterinarians. Um, now that sounds like it's changed. It sounds like there are more ARBA shows than there are those local shows. Is that what you're, is that what you, what you mean? And, and how many local shows then are there these days? Are there, are there very many at all? Well, there's some still, some local shows. Like last weekend, we have one local shows in uh, like, six hours driving from the ARBA shows at the same day. And I remember the one of the first shows I judged in Indonesia, I, that's actually where I met Dr. Yono. And so it was a double ARBA show. And then there was what we call, or what you guys call a local show. And Dr. Yono was judging his version of the rabbits. And why, and that doesn't seem to happen today. It doesn't seem to be where in the same venue you have an ARBA show happening, and also then a local show. So um, why back then were the first ARBA shows also including a non-sanctioned portion of the show, which was dedicated to kind of the tradition of local show? What was what was, what was was the, the reason behind that? Well, it's kind of a shifting. I mean, like, we cannot just make the ARBA show just like that. I mean, because... That they used to be with, uh, they used to with the local show, the way it judge and everything. And also, we respect, still respect Dr. Yono for that, for all his dedication and the rabbit, and also the rabbit shows. So that's why we make like a little shift for that. So we, yeah, we compare uh, ARB and the local show in early days. So it was out of respect for those that were in the transition state from, from local to ARBA. Yep. Yes. Tell us about the, during those shows, were the, the local judge, was he judging the same breeds that the ARBA shows had, or did they have those local shows judged by local experts? Were they different breeds? Um, no, the local shows is just kind of the ARBA shows with unlicensed judges and also the same breed, they use the same standard. And I think they use the same system too. But I remember watching Dr. Yono judge, and it seemed like there were a lot more rabbits participating in the, the local show, the non-ARBA version, which I think we call uh, Teddy and also Reza, which are local breeds to Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Can you tell our audience what those local breeds are and, and what they look like and maybe where they came from? Well, actually, the Reza is um, one of the hybrid from Indonesia. It's um, the hybrid from the Rex and Satan, and I think it's from Fremish Giant. The purpose to make that breed is to have a bigger a Satan, no, a bigger Rex rabbit with Satan fur. So I think they want to make the pelt as an industrial thing or something like that for the garment. So that's why they make that breed. And with the teddy, I think we call it fuzzy lobe. 
it's not American fuzzy lock, but it's a fuzzy lock. It's just kind of a pet because um, people, they prefer the long hair rabbits with a lot ear. And we don't have American fuzzy lock before. So that's why they create that breed. And what's the difference if you put um, uh, an Indonesian local fuzzy lop that came from, you know, generations of being bred there, what do they look like compared to a fuzzy lop? If you put an American fuzzy lop next to an Indonesian fuzzy lop, uh, what physical characteristics are different between the two? Um, from from the fur, I mean, like, the fur is just kind of the lion head that they have clean settled with longer flank fur. And they have the lob ear. I think um, the head is a little bit snappier than the American fuzzy lob. And for the body type, they are longer body type and a little bit flat, I think. Yeah. And then aren't the, the ears of the local Indonesian fuzzy lob they have wool, correct? They're covered in in, a, in wool instead of clean, like our American uh, fuzzy lock. Yeah, they they have long. I mean, it's not wool. It's like a normal fur that long. Right. It's but that for me when I when I first saw them, I thought they kind of look like a lion head, but they have <laughs> lop ears and there's there seems to be longer fur or longer wool on their ears. They're, they're very they're very cute. They're very interesting and they were very popular. Yeah. I remember that very first show or second show, there were like 60 or 70 local fuzzy lops there. And they had quite a bit of attendance and a lot of interest by the locals. Do you still find that breed popular today or have they been uh, lower in number and, and more replaced by ARBA sanction or ARBA recognized breeds? Um, no, they're still popular until now. I mean, like some people still like them. And um, even though there's an ARBA sanction, we have, we still have that breed as an exhibition. Pretty cool. Um, before we talk more about the the shows, tell us, I, I don't mean to go backtrack, but rabbits in Indonesia, was there a commercial market for rabbits, whether it was in meat or in uh, wool or fur before show rabbits came around in 2008? Um, it's more to meat. I mean, like there's a lot of like small restaurant or a small food stall that sells like rabbit skewers or rabbit satay we call it here so it's more to meet rabbits than the show rabbit i mean like for the we don't really have shows before then but we have kind of pet pet rabbits that people love to have them at home just like a pet so that's why it's more to meet rabbit and a pet rabbits i remember when i was in bandung for one of those early shows there were a lot of English Angoras and Bandung is a mountainous higher elevation community south of Jakarta on the island of Java. And so it's cooler. And I remember learning that Angoras were more popular there because of the weather. Um, do you want to talk about the Angora rabbit industry in Indonesia uh, around that time? And, and is it still around today? Well, actually, um, also the Angora, we don't use any wool from the angora rabbits it's only purely for pets so the angoras being raised then were simply used in a pet market they were not their wool was not uh clipped or harvested to use in textiles no until now that's very interesting well it's also like you said it's it's a hot climate <laughs> so i i can't imagine ever wearing a sweater i don't think i've ever packed a sweater when i go to indonesia even for the mountainous well, region oh well, yeah it's always funny when you come here because you are always freezing, <laughs> even even in our warm months. <laughs> so let's talk about the, the very first rabbit show. Tell us about the the club and what you decided to call it and um how you went about, you know, not not you don't have to go into depth about how to sanction, but what inspired you to, to choose the name and to and to charter with ARBA and then when that very first ARBA sanction show happened in Indonesia. Well, actually it's um 2012, I th in Bekasi here near my place. Like it was, I think it was Ellen Messick and Chris Zemney who were judged for the first time for the Airbnb Sanction show. And it was held by the, what we call it as IRS, 
Indonesian Rabbit Society, and it was um, led by Andi Jamhur and his wife. Mm -hmm. Do you remember her her name? Sinta. Sinta. Yes, of course. Okay. Yeah. The yeah, late Sinta. The late Sinta, who was, uh, I believe she was the first secretary of that show as well, correct? No, I was the secretary. Oh, excuse me. It was it was a later <laughs> show that I remember uh, Sinta pulling her hair out with all these comment cards. But yes, it was you that was, you were the first secretary. So t talk about your role in, the, in that very first show. Obviously, you're an English speaker, so you're able to communicate and translate between uh, Chris Demney and I as the first judges. Um, what else was, was your role and how on earth did you figure out how to secretary a show if you've never even been to an ARBA sanctioned show before? Um, I think I was found, I think it's uh, from the Google, I mean, uh, a PDF that I found a ARBA handbook or maybe it's from the old book. I don't remember, I don't remember which one because I bought some of the ARBA old standard and old guidebook so that's that from that source that I can find about the role of the show secretary and then show superintendent and how to run a show. And did you find it challenging? Well, yeah, for the first time it is. I mean, like <laughs> we never do this, something like that before. I mean, like our local show is just, we just need um, like what we call it, the chairman of the committee and then all the people who do everything, something like that. And talk about the show location because a rabbit show in Indonesia doesn't necessarily look like a rabbit show here. Talk about the, the first location and, and actually a common location for Airbnb shows in Indonesia. Where are they held? Well, it was in a mall, like a, in the hall of a mall because of the weather, you know, that when, um, when outside, it will be hot because of there's no aircon. Um, and then most of the rabbit, they hate the warm, the warm weather here in Indonesia. So that's why I think you hit that too. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a challenge, it's yes. Yeah, so that's why um, we choose to help the shows at the mall with the aircon. Indoor and some of the shows still do the same, but nowadays, um, like our last weekend shows, it was in like a small hall, but it's up in a mountain. I mean, like we don't use any aircon, but it's cool enough already for the rabbit and for the people. Did you find that hosting the rabbit shows in public venues such as a mall did that help to um, promote? rabbits as a as a show animal and and promote new people getting involved because they're passerbys you know shopping in the mall that day that that exposure to the the rabbits that they otherwise would not have had did you find that effective yeah that's one of the goal and the reason why we want to have them in the mall because like the rabbit show is not really popular and then people only know they know that Rabbit is just for pets. I mean, like, no standard. Just only the white rabbit with red eyes or a, like the angoras, like the long fur rabbits, just like that. I mean, like, they don't know about and that rabbit has a lot of breeds and a lot of, like, kind of shape, something like that. So let's fast forward in your journey in rabbits. In 2012, you traveled to the United States for the very first time in your life. Um, why, why did you decide to come to the ARBA or to the, um, to the United States in 2012? Well, um, I have no idea at that time. I mean, like I just went to travel and tried to do the test, the registrar test that mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, like, <laughs> I have no idea what kind of test you had at the time. I just learned from the standard and from the registrar study book. And then um, I did my test just a day after I arrived. I mean, so like, you, you had jet lag and you're exhausted from your journey and you yes. travel to a foreign country and take your Airbnb judge test all in the matter of about 24 hours. 
<laughs> that, that's pretty intense, yeah. Ari. Well, because I have no idea, I just do whatever I need to do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, fast forward, you did pass your exam, correct? I did. And then you had to work your three shows and also yeah. your one with a registrar. What was it like to work uh, under a judge at a sanctioned show in the United States for your license? Well, it's actually crazy because I have to finish them like in 28 days because that's the only time that I can stay at that time. I I need to finish all of them. And um, also here in Indonesia at that time, I think we only have like seven seven um, standard rabbits from the standard. Seven and breeds. Then, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, seven breeds from the standard. And um, I have to work with the judges with those of the rabbits that I've never seen and I never imagined before. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's pretty incredible. I can't imagine testing on something that I had never had my hands on before. And you did that. You learned, you knew about the rabbits in text in in a book be before you ever even saw them in person. Yes, so, that's correct. <laughs> so what was it like in 2012? Um, because you came in the fall and you got to travel to the ARBA convention at the same time. So you not only took your registrar test, but you got exposure to the biggest rabbit show, quite possibly the biggest rabbit show in the world. What was it like for you to walk into that convention showroom in Wichita, Kansas in 2012? What went through your mind as you saw the showroom and all of those animals? Well, I think it's so overwhelmed. I mean, like, mm -hmm. and if I imagine that um, I can see that numbers of rabbit in one place, like a lot of rabbits, like, well, it's actually been for me uh, to join the first. When you were at the convention, were you excited to walk around and see every breed that you had, you had only read about up until that point? Yeah, I think I spent like a day to walk at the hall to see for each rabbit and to recognize them. Like, I think about it's overwhelmed. I mean, like, that's a lot. It was, I think, still 47 breeds before, right? I think so during that time. What breed yeah. What what breed were you most excited to see? Well, because the Hololop and the Dwarf is really popular here. So that's the only two breeds that I really love to see at that time. And what did you think of the quality when you saw them? Well, it's quite different from ours, right? Because... Um, we already have some imported rabbits from the U.S., but um, it's a little bit different in quality. Maybe because um, that's we only do like only one or two imported before that. And were your friends back in Indonesia messaging you on Facebook and asking you all about what it was like to be there? Yeah, some of the people, some of them are interested to come. And, well, maybe in uh, future years, some of Indonesia want to join the convention too, or and to visit. Was 2012 the last time you came to the United States? Excuse me? <laughs> was 2012 the only time that you came to the United States, or well, have, you, uh, yeah. have you come back? Um, yeah, many times after that. <laughs> yes, you have. So you ultimately decide to pursue an ARBA judge license. And you were the first registrar, by the way, of course, in Indonesia and in Southeast Asia. So what made you decide to pursue an ARBA judge license and become well, effectively the first native Asian born <laughs> ARBA licensed judge? Well, actually, because we have a lot of shoes here, and then um, some of the people want to to have like instead of um uh the U.S. judges also, but they want some local judges. So that's why uh some of them might ask me if I want to take the test for the judges' license or not, and then well, and then I try. I mean, like, <laughs> my first time, it was fail. <laughs> it was fail, yes. It was, but I, be I bet you learned a lot, correct? I did, yes. <laughs> what was it like there? I, I, I traveled with you. Remember, we took the, you took your first test at, at Joe Lugo's house here in California. Yeah. Um, yes. And 
I remember you you studied a lot. We studied, didn't we study on the drive? Yes. <laughs> to, to that morning, I think we studied the night before. And um, I know you spent a lot of time with Kathy Groves, who uh, was diving into the standard and helping you at the same time, right? Uh huh. Yeah, that's correct. So <laughs> you brought up an interesting point about shows in Indonesia and the fact that there aren't local or before you there weren't local licensed Arabia judges. So if a show or a, a committee of of breeders in a, in a club wanted to put on a show, that's not something that you can just have judges, Airbnb licensed judges drive to like you can here. You have to, you have to pay, spend a lot of money, correct? To, to fly these judges in, right? Yep. Yeah. So it's no wonder they said, okay, Ari, now you have the register license, please get your judge <laughs> license. So the expenses are a little bit less, right? Yeah. That's what they expected. <laughs> and now that you have your, your license, do you do you judge quite often in Indonesia? Well, for the RBA shows, yes, I did. If I have time, I mean, like most of the sanction show, I judge them, and we will have another shows this weekend too. Is that RBA sanctioned or local? It is a. Uh, it's gonna be RBA sanctioned. Very cool, and I believe you just judged um, a show last weekend, right? Yeah. And that was ARBA or local? It was ARBA too. That's and some cool. local. So, I mean, like, because there's local judges too. And you, you, you do realize, Ari, you're judging more than a lot of us are back here. You're judging more shows yeah, right now than, than us judges here in the U.S. Well, yeah. Because, you... um, uh, because of the COVID, we, I think we canceled some of the shows before, like almost six months. Or, or almost a year. I, th- I think it's about six months. And then when we can have the shows, some people just want to go to the shows. So that's a, that's a question then, I was going to ask you. How has COVID affected ARBA shows in Indonesia and in Asia? Well, it, actually, it's because of the we can we cannot have that kind of big crowded shows. So that's we are cancel some of the shows I think almost six months and um our first shows i mean the sanctioned shows after that we have like almost 400 rabbits wow are you kidding <laughs> yeah it's did, crazy. did you judge them all i did all right how long did it take you to judge 400 rabbits well it's almost midnight <laughs> oh my gosh and there's there's no option to like call up another judge to to help with the show because you're the only licensed Arabia judge in the entire country. Yeah, I mean, so like, have we have all. kind of... Yeah, we have double shows. And um, Iqbal also judged them as a registrar. So you had, so, so you had like, an unsanctioned show as well yeah. that, yes. that he did. But, but in each show, there were 400 rabbits? <laughs> Almost 400 oh, rabbits. Oh, my gosh. So <laughs> the energy and the interest in rabbits has not gone away at all during COVID. People are still interested in showing rabbits and they want to get back to showing. Yes. And the last years, it's about 273 rabbits, wow. I think. Do you have any idea how many rabbits will be at the show at the uh, the show this weekend? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you going to be caught up by then? Or are you, are you spending all week just sleeping and, and getting rested in preparation? Well, I hope it's not more than 250. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. The challenges there, we, t- we take for granted... Uh, how we do things here when when you're the only judge in your own, in your whole country. Um, speaking of other judges, uh, you were the first native-born Asian Arabic licensed judge. Uh, can you tell us who else has pursued in Asia an Arabic judge license, and are there others um, interested in, in on that pathway? Well, I think Masako already got his uh, her license uh, last year, and I think um, Be. I come from Malaysia, is working for it. And I think Iqbal from Indonesia, the registrar, also wants to get the license. I, I, but he needs to wait like two more years for that. And then there are some Indonesian people who wants to take the registrar's test. But we need to wait until there's some U.S. judges coming here for the test. Right, because there are those there are those rules about who can give the test and how many judges you have to work under for that for that license. But it's pretty cool that 
the very first airba sanctions show happened in 2012 in indonesia here we are nine years later and during that course we see you getting your license to judge we're seeing masako in japan with her license to to judge that's already completed so now two um asian-based judges in the airba exist as licensed judges and Bay, of course, in Malaysia is, is is finishing his. He's already taken his test. He's just working a show. So within time, we're going to have three licensed judges in Asia. And you said there's others that are that are interested in working on those licenses. If um, what advice do you give to your your peers, your your breeders in Asia, when they say, "Hey, Ari, I want to do the same thing that you're doing." What advice do you give them on on that pathway? What what can they do to to learn and to and to be prepared for a license as a registrar or a judge? Well, I think it's good for them to uh, to join the shows and to involve as maybe as a clerk for the shows, so that he he or she can learn directly from the judges and ask questions from the judges. And also, that's I think that's the what the shortest way to learn about the standard rabbits because yeah, when you, yeah oh, because right. when you read yourself. It's really hard. Um, you need to imagine how the rabbit is and everything, how the detail is, something like that. But when you work with the judge as a clerk, you can ask as many as you want. We've had several judges on this podcast in the episodes we've recorded. And what you just said is something that resonates with a lot of them. And they all say, if you want to learn more, go to shows, get your hands on rabbits, get your hands on cavies, get behind the table and be involved. So you know, you and I haven't talked about this, but you, you, a world away, say the same thing. If you want to learn more and be involved as a registrar or, get, or earn a judge license, you know, get your hands on animals, go to shows to learn. Yeah, that's right. So let's just uh, go back to your experience. You have traveled back to the U.S. as a licensed judge now. Um, what was it like to judge rabbits here in the United States, traveling here now as a judge? from Indonesia. I believe the first show you judged was West Coast Classic, correct? That's right. So what was it like for you to judge the West Coast Classic? Excuse me, I cannot hear your last word. What was it like for you to judge the West Coast Classic? Well, it's really exciting. I mean, like, there's a lot of good qualities of the rabbits, and my gosh, they are stunning for me. I mean, like, um, I think I was judging some Angoras too, and also Betty Angora. It's really, I mean, like I never imagined before that I can judge hers mm-hmm. in my life. <laughs> and I think, didn't you judge the Argent Brun National at West Coast Classic that year? Yes, that's and right. Had, had you ever judged Argent Bruns in the past before judging the national mm-hmm. show? And no. <laughs> also, and also with the M Chin at the right. last two convention, uh, last two years convention at the convention That's so, my first so, time. so what was it like to judge at the convention and that was in reno right it was in reno so tell us yeah. about tell us about your experience as as a judge judging the convention um coming from indonesia well it's a really big big experience that well you never imagined before that you can judge in a convention like even in uh big shows in the u.s is kind of far away from my expectation because like I'm new in the rabbit and I'm like a new judges and from from far away land that don't have are exposed to uh, many breeds here so that you need to work harder to understand the rabbits. Absolutely. And this is a, a question we ask everyone on our podcast. Ari, we've kept you a, a long time tonight. And we really appreciate you being with us today. Or morning where you are. Um, think about your perfect rabbit show. If you could, if you could imagine what it would be like to go to a show and you said, after the day, gosh, this was like a perfect day. What would that rabbit show look like and and feel like and and how would you go home that night? What, what would what would it be like to you to be at a perfect rabbit show? Well, I mean, like it's kind of not really like a competition show. It's more that you can gather with other breeders, share your experiences and thought and learn from other people and have fun with them. I think it's going to be perfect day for a rabbit hmm. show. doesn't sound very far from, from my perfect rabbit show as well. It's about <laughs> the same. We really? speak the same. 
We speak rabbits, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it's a kind of a hobby, not kind of like a big competition for you. I mean, not, yeah, it's, on the table, it is kind of um, your competition about the quality of your breed or the way you breed them. But I mean, that after that, it's just kind of a friend gathering. You met, you, you meet your friends, have fun with them, and sharing your thoughts, something like that. So, Ari, when are you going to come back and visit us? Because I am dying for your homemade curry puffs. <laughs> I, I have cravings every day about your curry puffs. <laughs> By the way, curry puffs are these delicious, flaky little pastries filled with, with meat. And yeah. Ari is a master at making curry puffs. <laughs> and oh she makes them in mass quantity when she comes to visit us in the United States. And she stays, and she stays in, in our area. So when is it, please? <laughs> because I'm dying for some curry puffs. You can order it online, I think. No, it's no. not. All right, they are not the same as 979's curry puffs. Oh my gosh. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe all this crazy time is over, but I'm not sure when. I can't because it's like, Yeah, because I think that some people can, still can travel to US, but I think, well, it's not really fun like, <laughs> before to travel in this kind of situation. Right. Well, all right. We wait for that day. Thank you so much for being a part of our podcast tonight and uh, introducing the ARBA abroad, the ARBA in Asia, and in your journey as a, an ARBA licensed registrar, by the way, in both rabbits and KVs, and ARBA's first Asian-born ARBA licensed judge. Thanks, Ari. I can't wait to see you again. Okay. Thank you. I really appreciate your invitation for this. It's our pleasure. Have a great day. Have a good time. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Brian, I think it's time for segment four of our episode, which of course is education. What do you have for us today? Well, I pulled out another Domestic Rabbits magazine from November, December of 2011. And actually, I didn't know this, but the cover article was about Harlequins written by Alan Messick. Um, oh, no. I flipped, yeah. <laughs> um, I flipped through and found um, a really interesting article, some compilations of some research papers about rabbits. These were presented at the 1981 Rabbit Conference at the Pennsylvania State University um, in July. So that was 40 years ago. And we're not going to talk about other things that are 40 years old because it wasn't very long ago. Recent history. Recent history. So um, here's a few of the articles that were summed up and some of the interesting things we found. Some of them are probably a surprise to us and probably not. In the American Journal of Physiology, a study found that a uniform loud sound was played to 12 individually housed rabbits over 10 weeks. The rabbits were fed a 2% cholesterol diet. After four weeks, sound-exposed rabbits had more blood cholesterol, more aortic disease, and more fat in the arteries. I'm sure this was as compared to a control group. So what that sounds like is loud noises create stress and health problems that kind of follow with that. Fascinating. Um, another one, there was a couple more about sounds. In comparative biochemistry and physiology, this says 48 adult New Zealand white does were subjected to six minutes of clanging noise every hour for three weeks. All the organs in the stressed rabbits weighed less than those without noise except for the heart. Wow. I mean, that's a, that speaks to the to volumes about the species itself. Rabbits are a prey animal, so they're in constant fear of, of being eaten or, or dying. So. It, it's just amazing to think that, that that was even studied. And it's obvious, it's honestly, it's kind of obvious, right? When you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're prey animals and to them, loud noises often mean a predator is coming. Another one in the veterinary bulletin said in France, sonic booms caused does to kill their young. The brains and hearts of the does had abnormal electrical activity. Wow. I did not, I did not see this article. Clearly I wrote about Harlequins in it, but I, I must not have seen the pages. This is fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, it is. Um, here's one that's probably not going to be much of a surprise to us in physiology and behavior. It said that Dutch belted and Florida white rabbits were handled for three minutes for 20 days. Handled rabbits were less timid, more active, and had a greater urge to explore. Judges can tell you, handled rabbits are less timid, sometimes more active, typically have a greater urge to explore, and less of an urge to tear your arms up <laughs> or catapult off the table if you're a hollow lop uh, you know uh, in a february show <laughs> in the middle of a warm showroom for the first time <laughs> exactly 
You know, that, that um, actually resonates um, something that, that was passed down to me. Uh, Fibber McGee used to say, handle your rabbits, handle your show rabbits every day. Give them a rub down, you know, get them used to the show table, get them used to hands. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, there were some about reproduction, too, when an endocrinologist said that pituitary sex hormones are highest in early spring, lowest in early winter. Mating, ovulation, and reproductive output was lower from October through January, which I think most of us can corroborate. Absolutely. The British Veterinary Journal um, showed New Zealand whites um, were divided into three groups. Um, they were all bucks. Group one was in 98 degrees for eight hours a day for one day. Group two was in 98 degree temperatures for eight hours a day for two days. And group three lived at 70 degrees. It says 20 days later, sperm were abnormal. Even after two days after this began, the sperm were abnormal. Does bred to these bucks had abortions. Fertility and sterility um, is caused by high env environmental temperatures, 90 to 92 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, con continuous heat is worse than intermittent heat. Heat acts by depressing both the thyroid gland and the testes. Adding thyroid extract made little difference. Wow. <laughs> Makes sense, too. I mean, in the hot climate like we live here, um, you don't get a lot of litters in the summer, and it's not because the does aren't interested. It's because, well, the bucks just can't do it. They don't have, the, they don't have viable semen. Yeah, they're willing to try. and <laughs> Definitely. <I> think... <laughs> they still want to breed yeah. like rabbits. <laughs> um, the Journal of Reproductive Fertility published a study that says natural light causes seasonal variations in rabbits, which we know. Matings are lowest in September, as are birth weights. There are more abortions in the fall. Litters are smaller in the fall. Testicular weights of New Zealand white rabbits are lower in summer or in extended light. Very so interesting. some interesting things to it's always interesting to see these scientific studies corroborate what we kind of know anecdotally. Maybe they should just ask us. <laughs> we, would, <laughs> yeah. we, we would agree. But gosh, those are interesting uh, science articles. And we're so lucky in the ARBA to have the Domestic Rabbits magazine. It's it's literally a library of of knowledge that you get every two months in your in your whether it's online these days or in a physical copy in your in your mailbox. It's it's an awesome, awesome magazine. And if you're not a member of the ARBA, this is our little plug, guys, become a member of the ARBA because you get journals like the domestic rabbit magazine that uh, Brian just highlighted just one article from 2011 in that issue that talked about science. It's, it's super interesting and, and, and it makes us all better. It makes us all better as breeders and, and lovers of, of rabbits and cavies. And so much of this information is timeless. I mean, that's one reason I totally. love looking through my old DRs is finding things that are still very relevant, even, you know, 20, 30 years later, even years later. Exactly. Very so cool. you asked me the other day, should we end these episodes with a quote or is that cheesy? And I said, <laughs> yes, it's cheesy, but I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. We're both going to be cheesy together. So I, <laughs> yes. So you so, get the, you get the inauguration quote. Okay. And we're, we're trying to choose something that kind of relates to the subject of the topic of the podcast. This is a quote from Amy Chua and it says, do you know what a foreign accent is? It's a sign of bravery. And I, I like that. that because it reflects the extra work and the bravery that it does take for judges who are not native English speakers to go through this process, to get up and evaluate our animals in a foreign language. Um, I don't think a lot of us could imagine doing that. I, I cannot imagine it. And it's Ari just spent 45 minutes with us talking about her journey from judging breeds she's never seen before, only other in, otherwise in text um, to, to do that in person at a, at a national show or at a convention. Gosh, what a perfect quote and a, a, a really ideal one for this podcast. And to start off, which the geeking out we're going to do with quotes from, from here on out at the conclusion of each podcast. Thank you for picking that one. Great one. Oh, you're welcome. I can't wait to cheese it up. All right, guys. I think that's it for this episode 10. Thanks for tuning in and listening uh, to our international scope this week, which was dedicated, of course, to Ari Wardhani, ARBA judge, 979, ARBA's first Asian-born licensed judge from Jakarta, Indonesia. We will see you guys next time, and don't forget to talk rabbits. Have a great day wherever you are. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.